Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark or a sign on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. This passage is really important um, to us. It's important to Genesis. It's important for how we read the Bible because what we start to see at this point is what life is like outside of Eden. Everything we've seen up to this point in the first three chapters is a world that we know nothing of. It's a world that was perfect. It's a world that was flawless. It's a world where human beings walked in harmony with God. And we weren't even in the same place necessarily that our father Adam and Eve were, and our mother Eve were in because they were enabled to actually make a true choice without any hindrance. They were, all the deck was stacked in their favor. Everything was perfect. Everything was beautiful. Everything was wonderful. And all they had to do was just avoid a tree and its fruit. And they didn't. Now, the rest of us know that that's not the reality we live in every day. We know that we wake up in the morning sinners and we go to bed at night sinners. And that doesn't change. And what we start to see in this passage is the reality that sin is right in front of our faces. And it's a reality that we live within every day. It is the fabric of reality that we live in every day. What we start to see as well is this whole notion of Life under the sun. You know, you can sing it with me. Fiddler on the roof. Sunrise, sunset. Sunrise, sunset. We start to see that pattern. And it's not necessarily a pattern that gives hope. It's not necessarily a pattern that gives encouragement. It's a reality that I wake up and I work hard all day long and I go home at night to more toil and more struggle and more frustration and you kind of start to feel what the writer of Ecclesiastes said. There's nothing better 
for a person to be able to enjoy the fruit of his labor, enjoy the wife of his youth and the children from her womb, to eat, drink, and be glad for the day. There's nothing better for man under the sun than that. We see this longing for that reality. So we see frustration. We also see in this passage justice, and we see mercy. We're going to start to look and unpack those ideas and those concepts in this passage before us this morning. The first point I want us to look at then this morning is the matter of the heart. And I want you to begin to look at the matter of the heart as we look at this first verse. And look what it says. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now one of the things I want you to realize that's really beautiful in this passage is it doesn't say, and Adam had sex with his wife, and he got her pregnant, and they had a kid. And there's something really hopeful about that whole statement. Adam knew... And what we've already told you is that there's been a separation between human beings, that men and women are at odds with one another, that human beings are at odds with one another. And here in this passage, we see, even here at the very beginning, a ray of hope because we find out that Adam somehow had intimate relations with his wife despite sin and despair and misery. He didn't just have sex with her. They weren't two rabbits out in the field. They were two human beings. And somehow, even in the midst of this sinful, hurtful world, these two people were able to find a measure of intimacy. And they knew one another. And they conceived a child. And they named him Cain. And Cain's name means successful, prosperous. And that is going to become important in just a few minutes for you to know that. But I want you to know that. Cain's name means prosperous and successful. And so she has a child. And things look really good. And she again, she bore his brother Abel. Now the interesting thing about this passage is, is that there's nothing else said about Abel. We're not even told that Adam and Eve knew one another, and out of that knowing one another, they conceived a child, and his name was Abel. All we're told is she got pregnant again, she went through all the labor pains again, and she birthed her a vapor. Mr. Worthless. That's what Abel means. Now I want you to begin to feel the contrast. I want you to begin to feel the weight of what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with Cain, and we're dealing with Abel. And the other interesting thing that is happening in this passage that in some ways begins to crack open the door of the fact that there's a matter of the heart here is, is that while many commentators try to move all over the place, I think that the, the tried and true interpretation of this passage is the right one, and that is this, that Eve makes an arrogant statement when she says, I have gotten me a man with the Lord's help. And that may seem innocuous. The Lord helped her. Everywhere in Scripture, don't we know that the Lord is the easer of His people? He's the helper? But that's not really, I think, what Eve was really saying. I think really what Eve was saying is kind of what Jimmy Stewart says in that old movie when he says, Lord, we, we gathered the seed. 
we planted the seed after we plowed the ground. We weeded the ground. We took care of everything. We harvested the wheat. We brought it all in here. We ground up the wheat. We baked the bread, but we thank you anyway. Somehow there's a subtlety of that reality when Eve says, I've gotten me a man. Not a child. I've gotten me a man with the Lord's help. She's not talking about Cain being a little boy. She's talking about getting a man, someone to bring ease to the place. Someone hopefully, and I'm not saying she was doing it in a totally faithless way. I think she was looking for the seed. But understand, she's not looking for that seed outside of herself. In some sense, she is seeing herself as preeminent in that whole discussion. I've gotten me a man, and the Lord helped. Now, when you start to look at those two that, that little sense there, and you understand that. The reason why that's important to understand that is because you're going to see that again with Esau and Jacob, right? Aren't we going to see a father and a mother love two boys and put their hopes in their two boys rather than in the Lord? It's not that they've rejected the Lord. It's just that their boys become very important. This is not the first time we're going to see two brothers. And we're going to see it again. And so it starts to set a tone for how Genesis is going to operate down the road. It also tells us, just as a, as a side note, that, that the same seed, the same mother or womb can produce two different seed. And you're going to see that too, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But understand that Eve ultimately is the mother of the seed of the serpent just as surely as she is the mother of the seed of the woman. She produces both seed out of her own womb. So we see that there's this tension rolling around in this. But as we look back at Cain and Abel, Mr. Prosperous, Mr. Wonderful, and Mr. Worthless, Mr. Vapor, we see a very interesting thing. We see a very interesting pattern unfolding. Because what happens here? In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I mean, the man is successful, right? He goes out, plows the fields, he has a great harvest. He brings in from that harvest a portion to the Lord. You almost can get the sense that he might not have been too chintzy with what he brought. He may have brought a big honking wagon full of produce for the Lord. And then there's Abel. And he brings the firstborn of his flock, just one lamb and its fatty portions, and he lays it before the Lord. And, you know, you almost can get the impression from the way this passage reads that we have no idea whether Abel was a very successful shepherd or not. We don't know. We just know that he brings a lamb. Not whole bunches of lambs, just one. And he lays it before the Lord. Now, there are many who want to look at this passage and say, well, that's the trouble with Cain. Don't you know that what Cain did was he didn't bring a bloody sacrifice? And that's why his sacrifice was not accepted. But see, that's not true. Any, any serious reading of the Old Testament, Leviticus in particular, will show you that actually the word that's used here of the kind of offering that was being brought here was actually a tribute offering and that that was normally a grain offering. And so the fact of what Cain does is it's not the substance of his offering and it's not the amount of his offering. It's not that one brought a lamb and 
One brought, so you can't start to run off to John and say, oh, it's the lamb thing. That's, the prob- that's not the problem here. It's not the substance of the sacrifice. What's going on here is that we need to get at the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. That's what's going on here. That's what we're dealing with in this passage. And what we, if, we're, if we start to read in that lens, what we start to see is exactly what's going on in Luke 18, 9 through 14, where Jesus says there was a Pharisee, and he stood in the temple. And he said, Lord, I am so thankful that I am not like those bad, adulterous, wicked, vile human beings. I'm so thankful I'm not like them, especially like that tax collector over there who's the lowest of the low. I tithe to you everything you've asked of me. In fact, I probably give thank offerings galore. There is no limit to what I give to the temple out of what I have. And then you have the publican or the tax collector standing over in the corner, who says, I'm a sinner. I got nothing except a cry for mercy, a cry for pity, a cry of despair. Will you help me? And you see, if you understand that, you start to get at the heart of what's happening in this passage. See, what's happening here is that you have Cain... Mr. Successful, Mr. Prosperous, he's the firstborn boy. He's the apple of his mother's eye. He's daddy's superstar. You've got to see that. You've got to see that that's what's going on with Cain. Cain is the man. And what we see here is is as Cain brings his offering, what it ultimately leads him to is to give God a token of his appreciation not the desperation of a heart that knows without God, he is nothing. Without God, his hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. He has no hope. And Cain brings his offering and does his thing. And Abel brings his offering and he does his thing. And if you really were just to read this passage, you just kind of go through and say, I'm really not getting a big difference unless it's the, the stuff they brought. It's, that's got to be the problem, Dennis, but it's not. And you begin to see it because how does Cain respond? See, it says right here, and the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain's offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very, and the text actually says angry, but maybe a better translation would be Cain was incredibly depressed and his face fell. Now, depression can certainly lead you to anger, but the text really, that word really probably is better translated, and Cain was depressed. How can this be? See, do you feel the angst that Cain feels? He's depressed. I mean, Abel, my little brother, that prodigal, his offering was accepted and mine wasn't. Now, do you understand, folks, that when you start to unpack this passage in that way, do you understand what starts to happen in your mind? Can't you start to relate? Don't you, don't you understand what a... 
what a transformative reality this would have been to Cain. I've worked out in the fields. I've harvested. I basically fathered in, followed in my father's footsteps. The ground is cursed, but we've labored hard. I've brought forth this produce. He may have been very thankful for God for the produce. We have no indication that Cain somehow was a mean worshiper or he was a thankless worshiper. Here you go. What we're getting at here is somehow that when he brought his offering, somehow he was expecting something. And he didn't get it. Don't you see that? See, when he found out that Abel's offering was accepted and his wasn't, he got depressed. He got mad. Now, you and I both know that, I mean, we're savvy enough, aren't we, that we know that when someone gives you something and you don't give the expression or you don't have the feelings that you thought they were going to have when you gave that to them, and you kind of go, man, I, I thought you'd really like that. Man, I, boy, you ain't grateful. Ugh, never given you another thing. See, don't you, don't you hear that in this text? The expectation of success. I'm Mr. Wonderful. How can I not be successful? How can I not prosper? That's my name. That's what I do. And then there's Vapor Boy. And you accepted His. How can that be? It's a matter of the heart. Don't you hear it? Don't you hear what's really happening? It's a matter of the heart. The heart's what's wrong. The second thing I want us to notice in this text is the gentle father. We all know how God's supposed to show up, right? God shows up. Your offering's unacceptable. You got a bad heart. You're a seed of the serpent. You're a worthless dog. Your parents had wrong ideas about you. I mean, that's what's supposed to happen, right? I mean, we're, we're theologically savvy people. We already know what's going on in this text, right? Is that how God shows up? Look at the way he talks to Cain. We've got an angry, depressed young man. We've got Mr. Prosperous, Mr. Winter, and this is what God says to him. Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so down, Cain? Now, do you hear that? This is Cain. This is Mr. Unacceptable Offering. And the Lord speaks to him like a father. Can you hear a dad saying that to their son when the son's sitting there depressed, sulking over on the sofa or sulking up in his room, mad at the world? Everything's terrible. There's a no good, rotten, dirty, bad day. What's wrong, son? Why are you so down? Why are you so depressed? And then he goes on. So he shows concern. What we see there is the Lord's concern for Cain. He shows it. He demonstrates it. He asks him, what's wrong? Why are you so down? The second thing we see is he offers him encouragement. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. He gives him encouragement. Cain, if you do well, if you just 
consider the matter, if you just look at what's really happening here, you know, this isn't the end of the world. This isn't the end of the rope. It's not like you've been turned away. You see, there's almost a sense of hopefulness and encouragement when God says to Cain. Now, understand this. Does God already know the future? Nod your heads. Yes, He knows the future. He understands. But do you see the way He acts even though He knows? Do you, what I want you to see is not so much God's omniscience. What I want you to see is the character of His goodness that's displayed to Cain. He already knows where Cain's heading, but do you see how He treats Cain? He offers him concern, encouragement, and then He offers him the advice that any father should offer a son is warning. And he says, Cain, the real problem right now is not you and not your sacrifice. It's sin. That's your problem. And the language he uses, I'm going to use the title of a movie, which I realize the movie has more to it than this. For those of you who have seen it, just stop at the title and we'll be good. But basically what he says is sin is like a crouching tiger and a hidden dragon. That's what he's saying. It's a crouching tiger. It's ready to take you out. And it's a hidden dragon. You're going to walk into that cave and it's going to blow fire all over you. And you're going to be annihilated. Its desire is to take you down. And Cain, you've got to rule over it. Now as a side note, step out for just a second. This is actually the same language that's used of Eve when it says, Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will master you or rule over you. It's repeated again, this time as a means of warning. Cain, don't give in to sin. My son, don't be a fool. Don't go with the adulterous woman. Don't be hanging out with the mockers. You see, wise counsel, warning. A gentle father, a good father. That's what I want you to see. And for some of you, you need to see this because you know what? Some of you feel like your life has been full of Cain-type activities. And you see the kind of God you're dealing with. Why are you down? If you do well, won't things go well? Beware of the dangers. Beware of sin. It's a good father. The third point then I want us to see comes after we know what Cain does, right? Cain goes out. Language that was supposed to be used to heal, to build relationships. He goes out to speak to his brother to kill him. I mean, don't you feel, don't you feel the anger in this passage? Don't you feel the out outrage of this passage? This is your brother. Your brother. This isn't just about killing another person. This is about fratricide. This is about killing one who shared the same womb you did. This is about one who sat at the same table growing up you did. This is about the one who raised the same pets, had the same funny things happen, had bled together, cried together, and you kill him. 
And what we see in this passage then as we come to this part is the merciful judge. Cain does not listen to the fatherly counsel of God. He doesn't listen. He turns away from it. And he basically says, you know what? As long as there's an able, I have to deal with God. That's ultimately what's really going on here. As long as there's someone who basically is acceptable and makes me, I have to live with that. And that just has got to stop. I've got to rid myself. of Because every time, just think about it, every time he looks at Abel, what does he see? Acceptable, unacceptable. Acceptable, unacceptable. Acceptable, unacceptable. And that is unacceptable. You see the logic that's going on. So there's only one logical choice, right? Makes perfect sense. Get rid of Abel, get rid of the problem. And so Cain goes out and he kills his brother Abel. And as we look into this passage, what we see and we, we get into Cain, what we, what we look at is, as we come to verse 9, is this. We feel a sense of relief. We feel a sense of expectation. Don't you feel it? I mean, John Wayne has finally heard the news and he's coming into town. Arnold Schwarzenegger has finally found out his daughter has been kidnapped by those dirty, rotten scoundrels and he's going to kick tail and take no names. Don't you feel it? Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Where is he? Now he's not asking that like... He's trying to figure out the answer. He already knows because he's going to tell him in just a minute, right? Your brother's blood is screaming bloody murder. Cain, here's your chance. And even in this, though, you see a sign of mercy, don't you? Don't you realize that by God asking that question, Cain has a choice. Don't you see it? Where is your brother? What's the obvious answer Cain could give? I killed him. Because I'm an angry, depressed, frustrated person. And you're not helping. You see it? He has that option. Doesn't use that one. Notice his coy little comment. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, what is... What does little vapor boy need me to walk him around on a leash to make sure he doesn't get lost, make sure he doesn't fall into a, a hole, make sure he and those sheep don't go wandering off and fall off the side of a mountain? That's really what he's saying. Am I my brother's keeper? And at that point, don't you feel, don't you feel like you just want to reach into the text and just, just, just haul off and knock Cain's sassy mouth? You just want to... You, don't you know who you're talking to, boy? You just don't you feel it? And we start to get a sense as we hear the Lord say, "What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying me to the ground." And now He says it. Now we're finally getting somewhere. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother, your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. And we say, "Yeah." And, and, and what else? I mean, that, that sounds good, but, you know, all right, where's the part where you take a sledgehammer and just pound him right into the earth? Well, 
Come on, bring it. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and I will be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And right there you're going, That little worm. You killed your brother. What do you expect? What do you think's going to happen to you? Of course your other siblings are going to hunt you down like the dog you are and shoot you like you ought to be shot. Stab you like you ought to be stabbed and leave you out there for the scavenger birds to take care of because you're not worth a burial. You dirty dog. I mean, this isn't a cry for pity. This is just self-pity. And we all see it for what it is, don't you? Don't you see that's what it is? He's not really sorry. He just doesn't want to have to pay up for what he did. And we all know he ought to pay. And see, unless you feel that indignation right there, you're going to miss, really, I think, the heart and soul of this, of this, this 16 verses. Because right here we start to see something about God that really almost offends us. It really, really irritates us. Because right when God ought to say, enough with your little excuses, it's time to pay up, this is what God says. Listen. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark, and really the better word there ought to be, put a sign on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. The Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And the reason why I say it should be a sign is because that's the word that's used for the rainbow. And that's the word that's used for circumcision. Now, you've got to do something with that, men and women. Because we all know who Cain is. This is the seed of the serpent. This is a wicked dog. And what we see is the judge rides into town and shows mercy. Not even mercy to someone who is actually asking for pity. Someone who is full of self-pity. And he still got mercy. And somehow... If you really see that and you really get into the text, see, the writer of Genesis is trying to say, you've got to see something about God that almost just offends your sensibilities. Right? I mean, what's wrong in this country is a bunch of criminals that keep getting away with it. What we need is to smack down. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't, so don't hear me saying that. I'm not saying we all let... All I'm saying is that that's the sensibility we all operate in, and the text is somehow saying there is something different when you deal with God. There is a world underneath the sun and you have to live underneath it. You have to deal with the normal seeds of obedience to laws and all those kind of things. But when you're dealing with God, something is going on there. Even when you're being a fool, even when you deserve to be punished to the uttermost, you might yet expect a level of mercy in this life, even if you won't get it in the afterlife. And you have to see that. You have to see that sense of hope that's coming out. This frustrating reality of God. Because here's the thing we ought to understand. Abel's blood is crying out for vengeance. It's crying out for justice. And God gives Cain a sign of his mercy. And we have to come to the tension that we feel in this text. Here's mercy. And here's justice. And somehow... 
I'm sorry, but just being cursed and made a wanderer doesn't seem sufficient. He killed his brother. He basically went out and found the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor. I mean, is there anything we think is more despicable than someone who would basically abuse a little child? Would abuse some poor, defenseless person? That's what the text is trying to get you. You've got Mr. Successful, Mr. Prosperous, who has abused and mistreated Vapor Boy, Mr. Workless. The little man. And see, you, you've got to feel the sense of injustice because that's what makes what God does so, in some sense, infuriating. How can you show mercy to this guy? And see, that's the confounding reality that we need to come to in the conclusion now to start to deal with. How do we love Cain's? How do we love Abel's? See, what do you do with people who just really aren't that great? They're just kind of, they're not even mediocre. That's actually a compliment for who they are. How do you deal with them? See, this runs its course even as we start to look at things like abortion and euthanasia and all sorts of things. It has its course in those areas. Don't you understand? It works itself out. But as we start to deal with the matters of the heart, you need to see what's happening in this text. God is showing mercy to a man who does not deserve it in any way, shape, or form. So how should we treat the Cain's in our life? And the bigger question is, how can we treat them like God? Because that just seems impossible, doesn't it? Think about the Cain's in your own life. Think about the people that have wounded and abused and hurt you. What did they deserve? A kick in the teeth at best. How do you deal? How can you turn a merciful eye towards Cain? And yet God does. And maybe the answer we're looking for is found in Hebrews 12, 18-24, when it says this, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You come to God, the judge, and now listen. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, do you feel it? Do you somehow see that the only way you're ever going to be able to deal with the Cain's in your world, the only way you're ever going to be able to deal with people who are like Abel, the only way you're ever going to become to deal with yourself when you finally wake up and realize, I'm not much of an Abel, I'm a whole lot more like Cain. The only way you're going to be able to deal with justice and mercy is to realize that the dilemma that the text leaves us in is only solved 
here in Jesus. A justice that screams out better than Abel because all Abel's blood could scream out was this. Vengeance, vengeance, vengeance. And with Christ, His blood screams out. It's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. You see, Christ's blood is not some inactive reality that happened 2,000 years ago. It is a reality that speaks today. It's been paid. It's been paid. It's been paid. And if you're a person today who knows yourself to need that kind of salvation, that knows yourself to be that kind of person, like Cain, even today, would you call upon His mercy? Would you say, Lord, I am a sinner. And my only hope is that you will show mercy to me. Mercy better than the mercy you showed to Cain. Giving me a better sign than the sign you gave to Cain. Not just one that gives me protection in this life, but in the life that is to come. May God make it so in our midst. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you now and we thank you and praise you and ask that you would strengthen and encourage and enrich us as your people. We also pray, Lord, as we feel weighed down, as we sense the realities that in our own hearts we have Cain-like tendencies. That is, that is, in so many ways, who we tend towards. Lord, would you show us mercy? Would you not let us become depressed? Would you not let us grow bitter and angry? But would you draw us to yourself that we might see in that gentle one that one who became a wanderer, that one who was stripped naked, that one who found no place to lay his head, not even a rock to call his own. Lord, in that one, may we find our hope and rest in Jesus our Savior. Amen.